Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective, in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning starts here. My name is Tiluka, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, where I'm with Whitney Lowe. They're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioners learners can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. Hey, Whitney, how you doing? I'm doing well, sir, and how are you today? I'm good enough, thanks. All right. Uh, what's new in your part of the universe? Well, we are having uh, we're having a warm spell here over in Central Oregon, and um, we are uh, those of us who work on the bird rehab front are a little concerned. Um, this is an interesting little um, ecological tidbit here. You know, when you have warm winters and warm spells in the winter, bugs come out. They start to come out sooner than they should, and when the bugs come out early. They often hatch early, and then there's another cold spell again, and then the, when the birds actually hatch out, the bugs aren't in abundance. And uh, I don't know if you've been hearing much about this, but there is something that a lot no. of people are referring to as the insect apocalypse. Insect is, apocalypse? Yeah, we are actually having a very serious crash in the insect population that's Holy been happening moly. over recent years, and that has huge ramifications for the whole ecological web. So we're... We're noticing uh, a good bit of that. We've been watching this and process. And disruption of temperature cycles. This changes hatch timing and the whole cascade yeah, of yeah, things that have evolved together. Yeah, there's so all long. kinds of things. It's it's climate change. It's pesticides. It's all kinds of things that are leading oh, to this. Yeah. And, and so uh, a lot of people don't realize that a serious crash in the insect population is going to have some very, very serious ramifications on all kinds of stuff. Food Remember, pollination, for example. you know, Food, just, po yeah. pollination of food crops, yeah. And then yeah. just the base, the protein base for most of the life, I guess. I remember yep. reading how many pounds or tons of protein per acre there is that's mostly this 90% plus insect life. Yeah. Huge, you know, and that's most of that uh, protein synthesis on Earth happens in the insect level and then works its way up the food chain. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, interesting things. And we're watching the, the sort of early stages of this so this is the literal canary in the cold mine indicator for a lot of these things that i think um we should be watching for um wow. coming down the pike so wow another way anyway. the base of our pyramid is wobbly yeah yeah i think that's true yeah i think it's true huh. so uh walking on shaky ground walking on shifting sands as ida rolf said she said that was the biggest skill yeah yeah mm. i think think we're all doing that I think we're all doing that so well besides that uh what are we talking about today well let's see i think today you and i were having some conversations about 
things that really shaped us significantly and uh, were influential uh, um, things for us in our career. And we said, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we should talk some more about this in depth. Like, what are the big things that have been most influential for each of us and, and sort of share those with people and see if this opens up some thought processes and dialogues about what shapes each of our different paths and what takes us down the directions that we go in. So, yeah, well, I'm yeah. curious about yours and, you know, it just curious because I know you and like you and curious about how you got to where you are. But I'm also interested just in how you got, you know, as a person, as a, as a colleague in this field, how you got shaped, what kinds of things sent you on your way. And then you, you asked me that question in advance, and it's interesting to see the list that came out of it from me. Yeah. Too. So I think there's, there might be a universal level here that I'm interested in as well, like what gets us where we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it you know, it, it's kind of hard to draw that line and, and determine you know, where some of those things are about how influential certain things were in our career. Like how far do we go back? Like, you know, mm. okay, your childhood is probably pretty influential. Right. Somehow rather than, and so, you know, to where do we draw that line of, of significant things? But uh, we probably the won't go into. we were born in. Exactly. Yeah. Super, super detail about that. But uh, uh -huh. Well, okay. So who's starting? Should I, should I start? Yeah, start, start off. Tell right. me, uh, what's, uh, give oh. me some... Uh, Okay. In most influential things, I'm not necessarily in an, in an order. I don't know if we'll take them in an order. We can maybe go importance, chronological, or however you want to handle it. But uh, And the question is, what events shaped Yeah, for what, direction what has been most influential what for been most shaping influential? your path, your career, your, your direction, everything? Okay. Uh, I brainstormed about 20 things. So I'm not going to go through all of them. But when you asked that question just now, the... Uh, one that came to me was uh, showing up, and I'm just realizing uh, now it must have been, it was 1983, so that's almost exactly 40 years ago, showing up at the gates of the Esalen Institute and saying, hey, I want to learn what you guys do. Mm -hmm. I've heard about you. I've read some stuff. I just want to do this. Yeah. And I basically drove my old VW van down the hill there and said, can I come by? Yeah. And they said No. <laughs> I said, you need to be like totally in a program and do all this stuff. We don't, you can't just drop by. Uh -huh. But I, I was really interested in what I'd been reading. Yeah. This was uh, early 80s. So I went and got in a program. And that, that really did, that was influential because it was a place so many things were happening still at that time. Yeah. I think the Essel Institute, if you don't know about it, was influential on the culture in the 60s and the 70s and then into the first part of the 80s when I was there yeah. to some extent. And a lot of the, say, the Western traditions of body work, but certainly psychotherapy and somatic work and movement, spirituality, philosophy, things like that were being tossed around uh, and explored and deepened there at the Institute. Yeah. You know, when I was studying psychology uh, in grad school, I was yeah. uh, really into Fritz Perls a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, that's where I first learned about Esalen and the things that were going on there. That's right. And uh you know, was he still around at that time? Or he died in 1969 or 1970, oh, okay. I believe. Yeah, so I got there in '83. So no, it was, yeah, quite a bit he, after that. Yeah. yeah, but he was his shadow was pretty large. There were still yeah. uh, many of his students there, and that was why I went there. I wanted to learn Gestalt, Fritz Perl's work. Yeah. So lots of Fritz stories, and we'd watch Fritz movies and Fritz study groups and things like that. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty kind of gutsy move for a. Let me think. 
22-year-old? 22, yep. Good math, yeah. Yeah, Um, at that time. So how did that How Did did you just kind of like, like, I got to do this kind of thing, you know? Uh, Well, I think, I mean, when you and I started the podcast, we kind of interviewed each other about our backgrounds. And I think I told some of that story then, so I don't need to go back into it a whole lot. But it was... um, there's a couple things. I think I heard about the Esalen Institute from a massage book that I found in a bookstore in London. Uh-huh. It was George Downing's really, I mean, and Can't Rush to These Nice Line Drawings. It was very 60s, 70s I remember that book. Feel. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought, this is cool. You could just, you know, like a manual. You could go through and see, like, there's things to do. And then, uh, so I started learning it. And then that was all about Esalen. And then I, uh, one of my teachers in high school was on her way out of teaching high school, it turned out, and on her way into being a psychotherapist. And she would do uh, little groups with us as part of her practice and her education and her internship hours, do like gestalt groups with us after school. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, really good for me at that time in my life. And so that at that point when I'm like 22 and I tried a bunch of stuff and done a few years of college and says, yeah, not now. I got back to it later, but at that point, no, I don't want to do this. What do I want to do? I think I want to learn Gestalt. I'm just going yeah. to go see huh. what happens. And then, I mean, just to not t- tell you all about the five years I was there, and, but it basically got on staff eventually, trained uh, in every kind of therapy I could, including a lot of hands-on uh, therapies. And those are the ones that had the doors that opened the soonest. I went there to train in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. But really, yeah. when I look back at, again, what happened there, it was those bodywork doors that opened yeah. wide and had some opportunities that I jumped right. into and were great. That's such a fascinating parallel with the both of us, because the both of us got yeah. into this field from psychology, you know, going right. in that direction, and then yeah. eventually moving in towards what we were doing with, with more hands-on manual therapy approaches mm-hmm. and, and everything. So yeah. um, I imagine that's... Certainly, I think that's true for you, and it is true for me that that has continued to be a, a significant influence in those perspectives it has. and times. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I do come out of that human potential tradition where a lot of the body work that was being taught well, had that dimension of personal development in it, mm-hmm. as opposed to just purely, say, a technical field or a medical field or a re- rehab field yeah. or even a relaxation field. Mm-hmm. It was really about... Uh, you know, working on ourselves, becoming more aware, working with our own boundaries, awareness, energy, body, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how about you? What's What comes to mind for you when I ask about influential? Yeah, so I kind of think about uh, those things. And, and for me, it's also um, uh, a, a turn of events very early in my career. And, and for me, uh, I think a big one is my early association with Emory University, in a couple of different uh, ways. One was the, uh, I had a great fortune of meeting and running into one of the physical therapists that was working with uh, the Emory Clinic and they were getting ready to build a uh, totally state-of-the-art orthopedic clinic. And and ironically, it was just right down the road from my house. Um, And I I live very, uh, when I was growing up, I lived very near to to Emory University. And um, so she was asking me, you know, she knew that I was involved with massage and, you know, wanted to know if I wanted to come over and, and be a part of this clinic. And I thought, well, yeah, this is this is going to be absolutely great. And I was thinking about this earlier today when I was sort of thinking about these different things. There's another interesting kind of backstory to this, which is that uh, they didn't know at uh, the Emory Clinic 
that I had been banned from the Emory University campus for life. Huh. By the by the There's campus yeah, you know, by the campus police. Um, you know, when we were high up school kids growing up, there was a lot me. of there was a lot of mischief that went on with us uh, getting over and doing things on the Emory campus. You know, it started when I was really young with skateboarding in the parking decks in there, and the police would always try to chase us and catch us in the parking decks, and I never could because you could just, you know, skateboard down these ramps and then jump into the, the stairwells or whatever. So Faster than the police. Some, that's pretty you know, nefarious. I don't yeah. know if it escalated from there, but that's, you got to do something to get banned for life. Yeah, so anyway... <laughs> That was kind of funny, but this all the whole thing with Emory was was very different. It was, you know, working. Uh, this was a an orthopedic clinic that had uh, you know, a wide group of of individuals: physical therapists, athletic trainers, spine specialists, orthopedic surgeons, all you know working together in this team approach. And this is the first time I had really kind of looked at this whole idea of team care. Yeah. And um, at that time, also, I was I was spending a lot of time in the in the medical library because this clinic was also a a teaching clinic for the medical students there. And it was just such an absolutely rich environment mm -hmm. uh, with a group of people that were also really curious because it it was one of those kinds of things where we'd ask each other questions about what are you doing here? What are you doing there? What are you, how are you doing this? And I would ask the, the orthopedist, can I follow you on rounds and ask you about my patients? And, um, you know, I'd, I'd go into the, the treatment room and, and sit in on those things. And <laughs> one day, uh, I was following the, uh, the orthopedist, uh, the chief orthopedist around on, on his round. So we went into this uh, room and there was the, my old girlfriend was one of the patients in there. And yeah. she was just startled. I hadn't seen her in, in many, many years. And she looked up at me. She goes, my God, are you a doctor? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I thought you were banned for life, she said. No, just a massage therapist here following around. So uh -huh. uh, it was kind of, kind of funny situation. But that place really uh, got me to see a lot of the big picture of the healthcare system and, mm. and looking at ways in which massage can uh, integrate with the system and also find ways that, um, you know, we were exploring and doing all kinds of uh, experimental processes with massage. And you know, like, will it work on this? I, I have no idea. Let's try it. And will it work on that? And, you know, sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And it really helped me begin to have kind of a mental database of, understanding what kinds of things might benefit and, and work better from that process and what kind of things wouldn't. So, What a great uh, opportunity, both the yeah. environment of the, the inquiry and yeah. then being exposed to all the different professions and fields. Yeah. Uh, working with people in an orthopedic way and then that, uh, the chance to actually get the experience and see what worked and what didn't. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. It really shaped a great deal of my uh, learning and perspectives ever since that time. So that was uh, and inspiring, totally inspiring. And it was uh, it was for me absolutely like a dream job. And I ended up um, when I left there uh, several years later, it was I was leaving because I was moving out of town and it was hard to leave that job because I just thought, you know, I will never get another opportunity like this again. And this has just been such a, mm -hmm. a wonderful, Enjoy. really um, a moving experience. So um, it was hard was, to leave. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So what's next on your list? Other things that have influenced my careers. Yeah. I mean, I just have to pay homage to uh, various mentors along the way who essentially, they all taught me something in terms of content or style. Mm -hmm. But really the biggest influence when I just made my list here was 
the fact that they believed in me mm-hmm. and either op- gave me opportunities or encouraged me to take opportunities, like uh, Rita Rowan, who was there at the Esalen Institute, who was teaching workshops in Mexico and wanted someone to teach some body work. So I was on the massage crew at Esalen and doing some teaching there, pretty junior position. Uh, but she really did, she kind of took me on my first international trip and my first non-Esalen teaching gig where I just had to teach basic massage in her workshops for her mm-hmm. in Mexico. And uh, that was a big moment for me. And and her kind of belief in me, I was probably, goodness, 23, 24, no, probably 24 by then. So it was early on. But, uh, you know, there's a list of them. I got a list of a dozen names or so, people with just a different time says, yeah, I think you can do this here. Let's mm-hmm. throw you in. Let's see how yeah. it goes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great, great uh, opportunities. And you and I talked about this too, this um, term I've heard before about a talent vortex of just when you're involved and around a, a group of really talented people, how that tends well, to that. build that yes. whole whole is the greater than the sum of the parts process of, yeah. of the, the thoughts and the things that come up and the, the ideas that are germinated from those kinds of experiences. Well, that yeah, there's certainly the environment there at Esalen, which is where Rita was, but also that act of mentoring, I think really, it, it, it launched me, but it really made me realize how powerful I could be mm-hmm. in people's lives too. Yeah. It probably steered me toward the teaching I do mm-hmm. to realize that, you know, it's... Um, People need encouragement, and sometimes that's all they need. They know so much. Yeah. Or they just need to believe in themselves, and I can help support that too. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, you have certainly continued to do that and and become a mentor to a lot of other people down the road. So those are are lessons that are getting passed down the road, I think, very effectively. Wow, and then continue to have my own mentors and uh, more and more layers of both being supported and realizing what I don't know and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So your turn. How about you? Another one for you. Well, another one for me. This is probably this would top the list in terms of degree of influence. I think, and and this comes under the category of make lemonade when you're given lemons. Okay. Kind okay. Of thing. Uh, and I'll I'll subtitle this my accidental move to Oregon. So yeah. At the end, I think I told this story. I can't remember if I told that in our, our beginning episode, but you know I had left Atlanta in the uh, mid 90s, 90, about 94, and was intending to move out to Colorado to your town, in fact, and Boulder, into Boulder because it was such a, a bodywork mecca. And I thought this is a, the holy grail. And and uh, my wife at that time and I were moving there to, uh, to try to get in on that scene and then couldn't find an affordable place to live in, in the Boulder area. And um, you know, we were trying to sit around and figure out what to do. And she said, well, you've always said you want to go back to Oregon because I'd been to Oregon 10 years earlier and just fallen in love with this place. She goes, let's just go there. And so we just got in the car and drove uh, out there and, and ended up out on the coast of Oregon without intending to move there. And the, the big problem was that I had not investigated the licensure laws in Oregon prior to moving there. And Oregon and, uh, has pretty strict licensure laws. At that time, and this was 1994, yeah, uh-huh. you had to wait until the next licensing exam came up before you could take a, a license to practice. And I just assumed I would, you know, jump in and start practicing and make a living. And we 
started renting this house on a very remote part of the Oregon coast in, in a very remote area. And all of a sudden I couldn't work because the next licensure test was six months away yeah. and uh, I had no money. I was broke, but we had paid off all of our debts and credit card bills and everything before we left. And, and to me, it was kind of like, okay, now what? And so began thinking, you know, I've been wanting to create educational materials for massage therapists. And there's an opening here now to do that. I've been given six months of time where I can really just completely devote myself 100% to starting something like this. And I think there is a future mm -hmm. in producing educational materials for massage therapists. And basically that was the, the spark and the fire that lit the whole process of, of what I started doing with the business. And of, of producing educational materials because I was very interested in education. And we had at that time, and this was again, mid nineties, a real lack of, of any good educational materials for massage therapists in a lot of the massage schools. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I really thought there was a way to, to begin filling that void. And that forced me again, because I was broke and also because of technology at that time, wasn't that advanced in, uh -huh producing some of the kinds of things that we were doing. I mean, I was not that far removed from the early days of, of, you know, scotch taping pictures onto a piece of paper and photocopying them as, oh, yeah. as for training manuals. I've been know. there. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and, um, and, to, and then to gather, to do the background research, there wasn't like Google. No. Yeah. There was, you it go was down to the library, you, get, you know, find as big a library as you can and just dig in. Yeah. And, you know, I had moved out to the Oregon coast and there were no libraries within, you know, sure. uh, anywhere yeah. near where I was out there. And so it forced me into learning a lot very fast about learning how to write, um, yeah. learning desktop publishing, you know, learning about graphics and you know, graphic formats and mm -hmm. all those things that are involved with producing those kinds of, of materials, but then also organizing content and putting it together and and then also, you know, how does that blend in with what you're doing in the, in the classroom and in, in the teaching environment as well? And mm -hmm. and I uh, had only just begun a little bit of a foray into teaching continuing education workshops um, that I had been doing with Benny Vaughn at that time. So that was, you know, starting to um, put some emphasis on, I need to figure out how to get some of this stuff going really quickly. So it was a a very rapid fire learning process, but it turned out to be really uh, very inspirational and helpful throughout the rest of my career because having to learn all of that stuff by necessity yeah. to, to feed myself, you know, and again, I lived off my credit cards for like six months and huh. racked up a huge amount of debt in doing that. But um, I just, I was committed to the vision, you know, I was committed to the vision of making it happen. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, so I had like taken a, even uh, a, a a business plan, I constructed a business plan, and, and gone around to these banks and said, you know, like I believe there is a future as a, a massage education business. Really? And I gave them all these details about the number of schools and the lack of resources and all this kind of stuff. And they said, "Wow, this is really interesting. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> good luck. They didn't want to have a part of it. Huh? <laughs> no part of it. We're hearing like a little origin story. This is so interesting. It's like Jeff Bezos inventing Amazon in the front seat of his car, driving across the country, or whatever story that is. That's like yeah. This is how, Whitney, you got, you saw an opportunity, you saw a place there wasn't a lot being done and you had some need and you had some time and you started to move into that space. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So. I think, you know, I hope someday we get Drew Beal to come 
tell his story. He's our, one of our sponsors and of uh, Books of Discovery, you know, of today's episodes. And he has some great stories, too, about the same quandary. There's just no educational materials he was teaching. Yeah, yeah. And how his uh, trail and to the body came about, that kind of thing. That's one of those things that was just such the right thing at the right time. And uh, a few oh, yeah. years ago when they launched um, Trail Guide to Movement, they had a big uh -huh. celebration out there in Colorado. And uh, Drew asked me to come out and, and talk about this. And I said, you know, one of the things that I'll say about <clears throat> this book and also about the trail guide that I have heard probably at the very least a dozen educators say is, man, I wish I'd written that book <laughs> because <laughs> yes. so many of them had a similar kind of idea, but he really, um, he had the right equations and, and the right uh, resources to make it happen and to put it all together. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. That's great. So what's your next influential piece here? Yeah, there's so many, aren't there? It's um, it's probably getting to the Wolf Institute. Uh, Tom Myers, you know, on the list of mentors, Tom's there, but uh, he hired me to assist him in a training at the Rolf Institute, and I was the, to be the bodywork teacher. He was the anatomy teacher, etc. And uh, that... Um, I trained as a rolfer. I was working as a rolfer at that time. But that turned out to be a really rich chapter in my life of about 20 years working here at the Rolf Institute. And I ended up with that program as the coordinator of that program, uh, which was the entry-level program into the Rolf Institute. And there was so much uh, freedom and so much interest and so much so, such motivated students coming in. It was such a rich time in the field. This was early 90s. Again, so much was being written about, talked about, brought out. So I brought Tom back to be a teacher. I brought uh, Peter Levine in to be the psychology teacher. Drew Juhan came in and taught about, you know, connective tissue. Well, it's like, who's out there doing interesting work? Mm -hmm. uh, John Cotting, uh, Cottingham, who did some of the initial work with Stephen Porges. Just like, who's the most interesting people in the field? How can we get them to come in here and lecture to us? And so I was both coordinating that program and learning a lot. And then, like I said, it turned into a two-decade uh, career position on the faculty there that in, at that entry-level program and then also out into the rest of the program over time. Uh, Robert Schleip was a big influence on me there. And I still have, uh, Jan Sultan, still have connections from that time. And then the arc of that was that after 20 years uh, had passed, it was pretty clear to very amicably that it was just uh, the things I want to do were outside of that realm. And so gradually started doing that, and that became what I'm doing now as well, the advanced trainings and the series of workshops there. So but, can it re refresh me a little bit because I think yeah. this, is, this is interesting history, and for those that don't know, and, I, and I'd like your sort of take on this too, mm. um, if I remember correctly and understand, there was sort of a split of kind mm -hmm. of two different camps that was happening around that time. That's is right. that correct? Um, well, yeah, that was just within the first couple of years I was there. Mm -hmm. I trained with uh, one, the, the figureheads, you could say, of one camp, Emmett Hutchins. And then, uh, then there was, it was probably philosophical, but a lot of it was personality and organizational. There's lots of reasons why organizations split or people fight mm -hmm. but people it was very painful for a lot of people involved because my main teachers were on these two different camps and it there was a point at which the senior teacher uh, one of the senior teachers there quit as well as the 
director of the school, was uh, fired, and they left in the middle of a course I was teaching with Tom, and we had to deal with the students, of course, questions, what does this mean? My God. And so, no, it was a very rough time, uh, you know, emotionally and on the yeah. you know, the vision of the work. But it, it's, you know, there's a lot of, probably a lot of hurt feelings in any kind of process like that. But over time, it became a diversification or a richness to the field, too, that's allowed a lot of different things to connect. Tom eventually left the Rolf Institute, too. And again, that uh, he, he's gone a long ways uh, with what he's doing, mm-hmm. and he, well, he was pretty instrumental in creating an umbrella organization to uh, reconnect all the splinters from Ida Rolf's tree, which mm-hmm. had gone so many different directions. Yeah. So that was kind of uh, one of the earlier, more significant splits, and then there have been what seems like multiple different branching processes that have come out of that from uh, the things that have, that have happened throughout yeah, the Yeah, I, I think it'd be interesting to trace that out like a family tree, but it's uh, most of the other branchings were individuals or maybe a couple people who would leave and start their own mm-hmm. school because they just wanted to do it their way or, you know, whatever. That was never their plan to be part of the Institute. So there's lots of different structural integration disciplines. Most of them were around a person or a personality or approach. Yeah. I'm thinking of Joseph... Hellers, I'm thinking of the Guild, which was again Eamon Hutchins and uh, Peter Melchior's, uh the ones they started as they left. Uh, Tom Myers, Anatomy Trains, on down the list. And then yeah. Yeah, a bunch of us came out of there. I came out of there. Eric Dalton, Art Riggs, uh, Judith Aston, a bunch of us were rolfers that uh, eventually found ways to continue the work uh, outside of the Institute that we'd started there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, I've, I've always been so fascinated by some of the comparisons of that uh, lineage model of education versus some of the more, you know, standard academic structures yeah. that we see in some of these other uh, professions. And, and uh-huh. you know, clearly in, in some early professions, uh, there's often the case because you have a dynamic personality that's sort of at the start of something. And then, you know, they have core students, some of which, again, that whole talent vortex, you bring a lot of people together and it boosts mm-hmm. the the overall creativity and inspiration from everybody involved. And then they may end up uh, sort of going off in some slightly different directions as well. And so you see that whole growth and branching process evolve. Growth and branching, evolution, standardization, usually crises of, my God, we're losing the vision or it's getting stale or whatever else, you know, and renewal along the way. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, it's, it was uh, similar dynamics at Esalen because I was there, like I said, maybe, 10, 12 years after Fritz Perls died. I was there three or four years after Ida Rolf had died, and there were still many of her students there teaching the work. So yeah. those those discussions were very much going on. It's like, do we do it exactly how the founder does? Mm-hmm. Do we evolve it? Is it still what it was if we change it a little bit? Yeah. And what are the new centers of gravity? Do we center around new people, or do we center around ideas or processes or institutions? Mm-hmm. All those things getting sorted out for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels with with other things. I mean, you know, there's parallels with the way you see, I mean, even things like, you know, religions evolve after, a, you know, a dynamic individual or some kind of person leading mm-hmm. the pack. And then, like, do we stick exactly to what they said or do we bring in new influences and new ideas? And is that heretical to do that? Um, you know, that's, yeah. it brings up a lot of questioning. And some people like the questioning and some people don't like the questioning <laughs> of those things, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. 
Yeah, that's right. It's just it's, it's the how do bodies of knowledge persist and how do they evolve and adapt over time? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how about you? Let's see. I have one more here that I think was, um, if I think about the big ones, and this is not so much uh, an event, but I would say a, a trend. Of course, a yes. lot of these things have not necessarily been events that we've talked about, but this is certainly um, very influential trend of things in me. And this happened after uh, after I had been teaching continuing education workshops for a number of years, and I would say it was probably coming to a head in the late 1990s. Um, and this was a frustration with the format uh, that I was having to teach a lot in, and this was the weekend workshop format, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, a frustration that I was having in uh, trying to teach more complex clinical reasoning processes in a two-day weekend course. In little bits. I yeah. am right with you, my friend. Yeah. And recognizing, uh, you know, this is at the point, too, I was starting to to dive into a lot of the, uh, the literature about learning theory and, and learning science and starting to recognize that you, there were some things that I was seeing happening in the classroom. And you've seen this, I'm sure, a dozen times as an instructor where you present something, you think you present it really well. You ask the students, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> Nobody has any questions. Uh -huh. And then you go to do some type of practical application with those concepts and ideas a couple minutes later. And people look at you like a deer in the headlights, like, I don't know how to do this because you didn't tell us what to do here. And I realized that a lot of this goes back to the way early education forms us to really be told information and just told everything by the instructor. And then we just, you know, repeat that back on an exam at some point. And that is supposed to indicate mastery of concepts and ideas. And that whole idea really began to fall apart for me during that time. And I started thinking, there's got to be another way to do this more effectively. And that's, it's what drove me to start paying a lot more attention to, uh, I was looking into the educational strategies in other healthcare professions in, you know, uh, the medical school and the nursing mm. schools and physical therapy training programs. How were they doing some of these kinds of things? And for me, that was actually the beginning of uh, questioning and looking into online education because I started thinking and learning about, uh, you know, a lot of things around multimedia learning theory and mm -hmm. the idea of spacing content over longer periods of time yes. so that people could incorporate that better and then come back and use retrieval practice to pull that up again and do something else with it. And I recognized that a lot of this stuff couldn't happen in a two-day two intensive course mm -hmm. like this yeah. it just there was logistically it wasn't going to work and that's what really drove me to start exploring the frontiers of really high quality um, online learning experiences and again this is the early 1990s and early 2000s and the technology for doing this kind of stuff was really rudimentary at that mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and uh, you know my first couple of forays into that were very uh basic kinds of things too. And, you know, what I saw wanting to do, which just wasn't really practical with some of the technological sure. limitations, but. Well, it, we could, I mean, even an image had to be super compressed, forget video or audio. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, there was no video or audio things that were going to happen because, you know, it was back to the dial up connections and, you know, 28 K modems and all that kind of thing that, that people yeah. were on at that time. So 
you know, there was a vision of something that could possibly happen in the future. But I was also uh, forced to learn a whole lot more about you know, software and some of the, the tools that were being used to build some of this stuff. And I wait even, a minute, uh, wait a minute. Yeah. You said forced, forced. Yeah. Mm. By necessity. Don't you like it like a little bit? I love it. But you know, it's like <laughs> what I was when saying the forced thing, here's where I, I'm getting it okay. from is that I began with some ideas about how I was going to do this. I said, I need to go to some people who've done this really well. And I uh -huh. saw that there was some uh, really good advancements that were going on over at the university of British Columbia. And I yeah. started talking to some of the people in the instructional design department here and about this and, you know, how we would do some of these kinds of things and how we would deploy it. And I was going to work with them on this program I was building. And we started going through some of the process. And I kind of got to a point of saying I, we were having some difficulty of translating some of the content into ways that I wanted them to build things. And I just was sort of saying, wait a minute, I can really do this better yourself because i know the content and That's i know right. what needs to happen no. but in order to do that i'm going to have to learn a whole lot more about software and you know the learning processes and things like that so that's where the the forced learning uh, came into it but yes, you're absolutely right you i'm a geek there's no doubt about that <laughs> and i loved learning that stuff because i thought it was fascinating so yeah uh, no you're right it is a it is a, it, just for myself too it is a a, a love of necessity or something like that yeah a necessary love because from switching from slide carousels to powerpoint to online learning each of that was a technical uh hurdle in a way but it was uh, exciting yeah and continues to be and it's it's uh it's not separate from the craft of teaching and educating Mm -hmm. I would say, of course, the technical skills, but also learning how to use that technology. And yeah. so at some point, yeah, it's easier for me just to go edit my own video than look over someone's shoulder and say, yeah, right there. That's it. That's the moment. Yeah, no. right. Exactly. And, you know, some of the the software tools that were able to build more complex, you know, branching scenario uh, learning activities Mm -hmm. would be effective for doing some of the things that I was trying to get people to do with clinical reasoning. And I couldn't do that by just having them, you know, read a PDF document or watch a video or things get like it. that. It, there had it. to be yeah. trial and error. There had to be a way for people to have mistakes and yes. learn different pathways of thinking and all that kind of stuff to mimic what really happens in the clinical reasoning process. Mm, to move through a process and not just yeah. uh, down a single stream. Yeah. So, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So to me, those were, um, you know, it, it has continued to be a, a fascinating journey, but I, I think something that has really pushed the envelope of making me look at what is possible and what can we do to really model um, high quality learning processes in that environment. Because that's, to mm. me, that's a far better way to teach the complexities of clinical reasoning than it is to try to do this in our standard classroom environments, which is essentially one pace fits all and everybody has to follow the pace of whatever the mm -hmm. teacher is delivering and they can't mm -hmm. take their time to make individual pathways, choices and mistakes and back and learn from those and, and do things. It's just, it's logistically not feasible, especially in the, in the weekend workshop format. So, uh, yeah, well, that's yeah. great. That's true. And so you've found ways to continue that evolution and to, to replicate that process, refine that process in your, in your online programs. Yeah. So, and it continues to be an, uh, an exploration process of, of, con, you know, I look at what I, I, you know, I'm still very much uh, 
you know, reading, learning, and listening to a lot of what's happening in the new instructional design forums and, you know, books that are out and things like that. And, you know, looking towards the future and people are now talking about like, well, when is uh, artificial intelligence going to start making more of a, a dent in this? And how can we do things with virtual reality? And like, wow, it's really getting um, far down the road of some of these kinds of things. But the trick there is to yeah. not get sucked into the bells and whistles of technology <laughs> and lose the key concepts of making good instructional design, because uh, that's where the rubber, rubber really hits the road is, you know, is this a good and worthy instructional design to get across what you're trying to do? Or that's is it just good. the wow factor? You no. Know? Right. The, the fundamentals of the design, yeah. the actual progression of the content, the way it's presented and the, the ideas and concepts that build yeah. all those of what makes the difference. And then the channels that we learn in, I mean, Zoom fatigue is probably the biggest enemy of all this stuff. Yeah. Just too much time in one mode of doing right. it. Yeah. It ends up burning people out. And so I, I mean, it, it was, I mean, COVID was such a watershed moment where so many people says, okay, I'll give it a try. And a good number of the online learning thing, a good number of them go, wow, this is actually better than I thought. This could be okay. Yeah. And then a good number go, no, this sucks. I can't even log in. Forget it. I'm right. just, yeah. you know, stay with what I get. I know. And, you know, so much of what happened during the COVID process, you know, it was, to me, I think it will turn out in in the long run, when, as we look back on it in hindsight, to be a good accelerator of some needed changes in our educational strategies and methods to see like, yeah. because a lot of us were banging our fists on the door saying like, right. look at the potential and the possibilities with online education. The doors were just continually being <laughs> shut. And then all of a sudden everybody had yes. to do it and it turned into emergency remote teaching and it was right. kind of disastrous in a lot of instances yes. because people oh hadn't spent any time learning how to do it well. Oh, um, do I feel do know. I feel for kids and college oh, yeah. students just having to put in those years on Zoom without yeah. that? Uh, with, you know, again, like you said, keeping the door shut for so long that all of a sudden, oh yeah, I was now we're going to just instantly do it the same thing on Zoom. Yeah, right. Oh boy. And so it's uh, and you know the the technology, the infrastructure, the money for schools to take the time to really learn how to do this well, you know, it just wasn't there and we didn't yeah. have time to prepare for things. But my hope is that from this process, we will actually learn that, yeah, we actually explored and learned that there really are some good things. Um, and that's not necessarily really all about Zoom. <laughs> A lot of it, it, it yeah, isn't. It's another, but, another uh, tool, another yeah. medium, another outlet, another channel yeah. that we can use to yeah. be together, exchange information and learn. Yeah. It's just a channel. It's all yeah. So. Uh, hopefully, I think some of those changes will be uh, accelerated to some degree, and that will encourage us to move towards uh, taking the good and uh, dropping off some of the other things that weren't so good that, that didn't work so well in that environment. I think so. No, I think so. In fact, in my own thinking about it, the line is blurred between offline and online mm -hmm. so that it's integrated to a level that we don't even realize anymore. Yeah. That 10 years ago, we would have gone, whoa, that's really pretty intensively online. And now we're like, no, this is just me talking to my buddy on Zoom, whatever, yeah. you know, it just becomes more normalized over time too. It gets integrated so that we don't even think about that distinction so much. Yeah. Yeah. Very natural. And the, the things that we've become accustomed to doing um, and working with technology, the more we become familiar with it, the more it seems like second nature kinds of things. Because certainly, mm -hmm. I mean, even if we go back to a couple of decades, what we were talking about where we were um, getting started in the, the 80s or 90s, if we had a vision or a view into what we would be doing and how we would be transmitting content yeah. and information and talking to people uh, instantly all over the world, you know, right. at the same time, 
back then we probably would have been uh, like, oh, okay, you're talking about the Jetsons. This is not really, this is not really <laughs> well, real. It was pretty heady. It's kind of normalized now, but it's, it was like, whoa, people yeah. from like Brazil tuning in. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember the first time that I, uh, uh, back when I was in uh, uh, psychology graduate school, I was studying the works of this guy who was at, uh, I believe he was at UC Berkeley. And you may know of his name. His name was Charles Tart. And he oh, yeah. was doing a lot of work in transpersonal psychology and sure. some of those fields. And I was fascinated by his work. Mm-hmm. And this is probably you know, early 90s when I first got on the Internet and there was mm-hmm. uh, access. You know, it was all you know, black screens and white type and all this kind of stuff to log into a server somewhere. But I learned that people had an, an email address that you could write to them and they could write back to you over the computer. And I was like, and I came upon Charles Tart's email address somewhere, somehow, and I can't remember how it was, but I was just like (laughs) realizing, my God, I could ask this guy a question, you know, and he was on a couple of different forums or something like that and responding to people. And it's just like, this is amazing. You know, these people are um, accessible. And they're able really to be living and alive and interactive. And I can yeah. just like type in their email address and they'll like even maybe answer me sometimes. Or I can find forums where they're living and yeah. breathing and working. Yeah, they're engaging yeah. in discussions and, you know, I'll listen in and learn things and everything. So, yeah, it's been a wild ride for sure. Well, yeah. now Charles Tart's on my list of avenues to pursue mm-hmm. because, you know, his work, a lot of his work was around. If I remember right, altered states of consciousness yeah. or, or the nature of consciousness, say. And um, I have this theory, Whitney, that a big part of what we do is we're just, you know, alterers of states of consciousness in our mm-hmm. clients and maybe in ourselves. Yeah. But we actually, that experience of getting really good body work is a, could be defined as a state of consciousness shift as much as a connective tissue or functional shift or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's a fascinating um, list that we've come up with and some very interesting uh, events, influences, things like that. Anything else um, you want to finish with? There's there, so, like I said, there's so many more, but there, yeah. maybe maybe the, the one I'll, hmm, do I do the 2008 recession or do I do the trip to Mexico with Burroughs? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. tough choice. Let's. Uh, the 2008 recession was good for me in terms of it really, it ended my other work, which was as a corporate uh, management consultant. I yeah. was working with teams in a lot of tech companies about collaboration and communication, which I really enjoyed, but money for consultants completely dried up. I didn't know that you were doing all that stuff back then. Yeah. 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 Huh, cool. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was really cool. Yeah. And so th- I thought, okay, I got a kid. At that time, my kid was like, uh, what was he, nine, eight or nine. I got a mortgage. I got to do something. And uh, this body work thing's pretty cool. It's still going. On, it's like it was like a sideline, essentially. Yeah. So that's about the point I jumped in. Yeah. And one of the early things we did is we went to Mexico uh, and did a retreat. We found a little hotel in Yalapa that would let us use their roof for a workshop space. And uh, they borrowed massage tables from all of the gringo massage therapists in towns and made some mm-hmm. and rented some and trucked them all up in a little burrow wagon train up to the top of this hill where the hotel was. So there's like massage uh, burrows loaded with massage tables going up to this hotel. And then 
carted them. We all of us carted them up on the roof and set up this thing with tarps, and it was looking out over the ocean, and there were whales going. And wow. that was our first retreat. Huh. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah um, the Mexifascial retreat, we called it. Uh-huh. And what year and was this? This would have been uh, 80, no, 90, uh, no, 2000. <laughs> I have to think. It was a while ago. Yeah. It was at least 10, 10, 15 years ago. My goodness, that's embarrassing. I can't even yeah. remember the year. <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah. But that started a tradition of these kind of transformative retreats, too, that have been a big part of my life yeah. since then, yeah. going to amazing places. Yeah. Fascinating when we look back at the seeds of where those things come from and, and what, what are yeah. the sort of processes that got them started there. So, How about yeah. you? Did you get your highlights or do you have a... Yeah, I think I really got my highlights of those things oh, that have yeah. been um, really most influential for me. I would you know be remiss if I didn't also at least mention too when you were talking about mentoring processes. You know, My uh, relationship with Benny Vaughn has been mm. um, incredibly influential and important to me is, you know, he was the first person that I ever encountered in the education world that started talking about assessment and evaluation mm-hmm. as, a, as an important factor. And that, of course, started me on a big, long process of exploring that in much greater detail. And he has continued to be such a, a great uh, teacher and mm-hmm. uh, influence for me in terms of watching what he's done and, and, and how he's brought massage so so very far with with the work he's accomplished so um mm-hmm. you know that has certainly been a, a huge influence on me as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah quite a quite a man yeah so good well we'll have to like these stories have reminded me of some things that i think maybe we should do an episode on the strangest most bizarre things that we've encountered in our teaching world and, and how they've uh, also oh been a part of this too because those were those were some uh, interesting stories there as well all right yeah. Well, more to come, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Whitney. We'll uh, we'll thank our sponsors for today. Uh, we are supported. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more. And ABMP CE courses, podcast, and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including both you and I. So, thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So, we would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and also to all of our listeners. We thank you for hanging out with us every couple of weeks yeah. and hope you learn some stuff there as well. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that off of my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? Advanced-trainings.com. If you have questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or just look for us on social media under our names. I am Till Luca. And who are you, Whitney? Uh, Today, I will be Whitney Lowe, and you can find me under social media there as well. So please do make sure if you have a chance, hop over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating over there. It does help other people find the show. And you can hear us, of course, on many other podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. And please do share the word and do tell a friend. And of course, as always, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can calibrate your therapeutic ultrasound device to 14 billion kilohertz, and you can hear us over there. Zap. Zowie. Right. Cool. 
that will, I think, wrap it up for us here. And um, we will see you on the next go round. And thank you. Great to talk to you here on this topic. Thank you, Whitney. See you later. All right. Sounds good.